You're listening to the podcast, So You Want to Be a Writer, with Valerie Koo and Allison Tate. Valerie is an author, journalist, and national director of the Australian Writers' Centre, which is one of the world's leading providers of online and classroom courses for people who want to get published and write with confidence. Alison Tate is a freelance writer, blogger, and author of the best-selling series, The Mapmaker Chronicles. She has more than 20 years' professional writing experience. Each week, they explore the world of writing, publishing, and blogging to bring you news and opportunities, advice on how to succeed in the world of writing, interviews with top writers, and much more. With students enrolling from all over the world, you can find out more about the Australian Writers' Centre at writerscentre.com.au. Hello everyone and welcome to episode 54 of So You Want to Be a Writer. My name's Valerie Koo and I'm here with Alison Tate. How are you, Al? Uh, I'm really excited. Are you excited? I am. It's Monday and I'm excited. I need to tell you why I'm excited. All right. Okay, you ready? Go on. I'm excited because the Mapmaker Chronicles has been shortlisted for the Readings Children's Book Prize 2015. Oh my God, yay! Thank you, streamers. Q cheering, parades. Yeah. I know. Shortlisted. Wow. I never actually awesome. ever thought that that would actually be a word anywhere near me, but there I am. That's so cool. When did, how did you find out? Um, well, I've, my publisher told me. Right. What That's did you how think? I found out. Well, I nearly fell over for starters. <laughs> I was like, are you sure? Really? Is it definitely me? You haven't made a mistake? <laughs> <laughs> and then I drank champagne. Wow, how exciting. I know, it's very, very exciting. And the shortlist is only one, two, three, six. four, five, six. Six. That's fantastic. I know, it's very, very exciting. Congratulations. And so we won't find out until July who the winner of the prize is, but I'm just, you know, I'm like the Rexona ads, you know, I'm standing there and I've got my Rexona can and I'm just happy to be here. So <laughs> it's very, very good. And I, I said to my mom, I'm like, um, she goes, when will we find out? And I said, July. She goes, What? Why does it take so long? I said, Mum, it's publishing. Everything takes yes. a long time. Yes. <laughs> Goodness me. So, so anyway. Apart from that, you have been at the at a writers' festival. I have. I've been That's at the nice. Somerset Celebration of Literature, which is a children's literary festival on the Gold Coast, mm-hmm. and it's held at this amazing school. Um, and they, they sort of like all the kids from the school go, but they also bring in lots and lots of kids from other places. And it was just this crazy few days of, of talking and kids and writing and signing books. And um, we went to a uh, – they had a, an opening night party that had fireworks. Oh, my God. It was so exciting. Is that the only um, writers' festival in Australia that has fireworks? Oh, well, I think it – well, put it this way. I'm pretty sure it's the only writers' festival in Australia that has ice cream because they had, like, the dipping dots there. Okay. You could get your photo done in photo booths. It was oh it was God. very, very cool. And the kids were so great. It was really, really, really good. Wow. I had a brilliant time. And I met so many great authors mm-hmm. um, who were all doing amazing things. And I sat in on some of the different talks that people do because I think that's one thing, that, you know, when you start going out and doing school talks, mm-hmm. you're kind of on your own a bit. You don't really know yeah. what other people are doing. or So it was a really great opportunity to see some fantastic people in action and, you know, get some ideas and it was, was good. Most, I really enjoyed it. What was the most interesting talk that you went to that obviously wasn't yours? Ah, <laughs> uh, well, I went to Tara Moss did a talk uh, right. for uh, years 10 to 12. She, oh. she did a talk there and she was talking about how stories matter and the way that, you know, the way we read, like we read stories from 200, 300 years ago and they, they give us an idea of what 
life, you know, they give us an idea of what people were thinking at the time. Yeah. So they matter because how what we write about represents what we, you know, what we see and what our culture is all about. And she was talking about how the retelling of fairy tales and stuff is brilliant, but that, you know, women tend to be highly underrepresented in these sorts of stories. And mm-hmm. she was encouraging students to speak out on things that matter to them. And, um, yeah, it was a really interesting talk. She had quite a tough crowd because years 10 to 12 are, you know, notoriously quite difficult. Yes. Uh, but she did a brilliant job, so that was great. And I also saw Belinda Morell, who is one of Australia's, you know, most popular children's authors, and she was fantastic. She was her grandmother, great-grandmother, mm-hmm. great-grandmother, wrote the first children's story published in Australia. Really? And she Yes. And, of course, she is also Kate Forsyth's sister, mm-hmm. and her brother whose name is, I think, Ben Humphreys. He also writes books. He writes, as she told the kids, really boring books about tax. But um, (laughs) he also writes books. So she was talking about, you know, her history, the family history, and she had the book there that her grandmother wrote, great-grandmother. And the kids were just like, whoa, you know, they couldn't believe that there it was. Um, So that was great. Yeah, it was really, really good. Ellie Marnie was talking about crime fiction and how you decide who your detective's going to be and... It was, yeah, it was really, really good. I very, very much enjoyed, you know, just hanging out with the other authors and seeing what they were doing. It was good. Sounds very like good. immersion in the literary world for a few days. Well, it definitely was. And, and for me, it was really interesting because, of course, you know, the Mapmaker Chronicles is my first foray into children's mm. fiction. So it was a whole new world for me because I've been going to writers' festivals and bloggers' conferences and all that stuff for years. Mm. Um but never in that space. So this was a whole new bunch of people for me to, you know, smile at and, you know, bore with my stories. It's <laughs> awesome. Well, right? Great that's time. a good segue into one of our links this week because oh, okay. I found this uh, article on The Right Life called Attending a Writer's Conference, Here's oh, How to Prepare. Now, it's probably a little bit different when it's a children's one, but, you know, if you're attending a regular writer's conference where there's going to be other writers, but obviously a lot of, you know, agents and editors and yeah. publishers and stuff like that, yeah. uh, here's how to prepare. Now, before uh, we talk about this, though, I just want to have a caveat in that there are a lot of writers' festivals around Australia, um, you know, the major writers' festivals like the Sydney Writers' Festival, the Melbourne Writers' Festival, which are awesome festivals, but, you know, a lot of their uh, programme is kind of more focused for readers. In yeah. some, in a, in a sense, it could be the Sydney Readers' Festival or the Melbourne Readers' Festival. But there are some elements that are absolutely focused to the writers, which are like, you know, the workshops and the more instructional things. So <clears throat> this is more specifically to do with the ones that are focused on the, 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 the more practical aspects of writing as opposed to, hey, I'm just a fan and I'm going to meet my favourite author kind of thing. No, no, but these these are great tips for things like the Romance Writers Conference and places like that because um, those are very, very writer-focused and, you know, you do get an opportunity to pitch agents and uh, publishers and all of that sort of stuff. So these are more tips for that. So talk us through them, Val. Well, some of the ones that I think are important are do practice your pitch in advance because, you know, you don't want to be stumbling and get stage fright when you do meet an agent or a publisher. Mm-hmm. Do be able to explain what your book is about in one sentence because, you know, I've sometimes asked people what their book is about and 20 minutes later they're still talking and I still have no idea. Mm-hmm. So really important to have that elevator pitch ready. And because there's very little time, people are, you know, meeting for coffee, people are rushing to their next thing, people are going to the toilet, you need to be able to say it in a sentence. 
Um, go to as many educational sessions as possible. So don't just go to, you know, the ones where you have, you get to meet your favourite author. Make sure that you schedule in the ones that are going to be practical as well. But I would add to that, identify the ones that editors and publishers and agents are most likely to be at. Mm. So try and figure those out from, you know, the description and go to those as well. But there's a whole whole bunch of um, other par- other ones. We, importantly, do dress the part. <laughs> yes, and I would also like to put this this one here about do bring business cards. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I'm going to point that out because I never remember to take business cards to anything. And so I'm standing there at my conference on Friday and a lady who's organising another festival came up to me and asked me you know said to me that she'd like to talk to me about going to speak at that yes and she said do you have a card and I was like um nope (laughs) (laughs) so I had to write my email address on a piece of paper to give to her which is so not cool so I'm just saying like do you know do as I say not as I do that's a great idea and in fact uh I'm a bit like you I I I tend to forget and I'm going to a conference next week and I've realized oh my god I don't have any business cards oh my god I'm not going to have them in time so I have got some made through moo cards that's moo.com but there but because there isn't enough time because I'm going to get on a plane this week uh I they're going to get delivered to the conference so I'll turn up and my business cards will be there and they're, they're very cheap. You know, I've only ordered 50 business cards because let's be realistic. I'm not going to hand out, you know, hundreds. <laughs> <laughs> Can I also say, though, too, I just want to add to this because I'm looking at this um, th- this list and it's it's a good list. Like, it's you know, do bring a bit of extra cash. You're going to want to buy books. Mm. Don't give people pages, you know, in the toilet. Like, I've heard stories about editors and agents who are at these conferences and people are sliding manuscripts under yep. the toilet door. At oh, the- my God. And, I mean, and that's the thing. They People are actually doing it. And I, I can honestly say to you that that is not the way forward. No. You are not going to make any friends mm-hmm. doing that. Um, and, you know, uh, you know, don't monopolise people's time and stuff. But I reckon one of the most important things about going to a writers' conference is meeting other writers. Oh, yes. So don't be there just thinking, I'm going to find an agent, I'm going to find a publisher, and, and be focused on that. Talk to the person next to you. I have met some of the best people in my entire life and some of my best friends mm. from starting a conversation with the person sitting next to me at a writers' conference. Mm. And I honestly, I mean, we're talking like kindred spirit, you know, loves of my life, <laughs> friends. Um, wow. No, really, simply from the fact that we've started a conversation. Like people are there because they love writing too. So if you're someone who wants to, like we've talked before about the importance of making creative friendships and networking and stuff, networking is not necessarily about trying to climb a ladder. Sometimes it's just about finding all the people on the level with you that are going to, you know, and you all support each other to move up. Yeah, and I, that's really, really important to remember. And seriously, some of the best people you ever meet in your life will be standing next to you at a writers' conference. Absolutely. So yeah, definitely pay attention to the person next to you. Don't keep your eyes so focused on, you know, writers and I mean on on editors and agents and publishers. And another one that they have um, listed here is do read other writers' blog posts describing their experiences at conferences before you go. Hmm. So you can get a better sense of how to best spend your time. But in addition to that, read other writers' blog posts so you can you might want to connect with them. You yes, know, you, that's or, true. Follow and then follow them on Twitter and say, "Hey, do you want to have a coffee or something like that?" 
or yeah yeah because there's a lot of people you'll often see them you know oh i'm going to this you know yes. who's going put your hand up and say hi because if you're going on your own then you've got someone to meet and you feel so much better about it. Like there's nothing worse than walking into a room full of 500 people and not knowing anyone. Whereas if it, you know, the thing that always makes me laugh about Twitter though is I always say to people, like they come up to me and say, hi, how are you going? And I'm like, wow, you're so much bigger than you look in your avatar because you only (laughs) ever, I know I'm such a loser, you you only ever see them on Twitter and people do look quite different, you know, to their their avatars. So, um, you know, just stand there looking obvious in the hopes that someone will approach you. Oh, I know. Okay, so let's Aren't you glad you're not going with me? <laughs> let's move on to our next link, which is actually about um, top authors give their advice about blogging. So it's a bunch of authors who have given their tips on what they should do in terms of uh, building their author platform via blogging and other means, of course. And I think that's really important because I am still very shocked at the number of writers who A, don't embrace blogging or B, don't embrace social media at all or, or C, embrace them but use them in the completely wrong way. So I think that the one of the we, – and we've mentioned this before, but I don't really care if it sounds like we're flogging a dead horse because it's – I believe it's so important mm. is that the, we meet so many – well, I, I know – yeah, I know we both meet so many writers who will say, oh, yeah, yeah, I'll start the blog when the book is released. And it's just mm. too late. He, in this, in this um, uh, survey, seven, 14 out of 17 authors started blogging before their book was published. Mm. And 13 out of 17 authors believe that blogging helped their book sales and platform building. Yeah. So, you know, if you're not think if, if like, as we've said, you know, last week, if you're already a world famous author like Elizabeth Gilbert, you probably don't even need to do it. But if you are wanting more book sales, you do need to do it. And having said that, Elizabeth Gilbert, who um, she used, she essentially blogs on her Facebook page. She, she does. Essentially yep. writes blog posts on her Facebook page. So she even who, – who, and she doesn't need heaps of sales because she's got heaps of sales. You know, she's a sure thing. Um, she understands the importance of connecting with her audience on a regular basis. She does, and yes. she does it really well as she well. Does. And she also guest blogs. So that's something else that people can think about too. She actually guest blogs um, at different places. Like she puts herself, you know, out there in blog posts on, on other people's, in other people's space. And, you know, sometimes that's a, that's, there's two things that you can do with that if you're a kind of a new author. It helps you to expand your um, readership. People will see you in places, you know, they're not having to find you on your blog, they're finding you on someone else's blog that they're already visiting. Yes. So guest blogging can be very, very useful from that perspective. But it also means that you, you know, like I think people get freaked out because of the regularity of blogging and you, it, you do you don't have to blog every day, but you just have to be consistent about blogging. So yeah. I blog now once a week um, and to be perfectly honest with you, it's a you know I'm once or twice depending on the week, and um, I'm not even consistent with days, but I'm sort of there. And I also have a huge like I, I I talk to people on Twitter and Facebook all the time, and I do you know different things. So um, I used to blog every day, like I blogged every day for three years. That's amazing. Um, I couldn't do that. <laughs> well, do you know what I have to say? Like. I actually found it. I loved it. I, mean, I just loved it. I kept doing it. I, I would have kept doing it except I realised that I'd written 350,000 words on my blog 
And um, what I really probably could have done is put 100,000 of those into a novel. And that that's why I cut back. That's the only reason I cut back. And then I was doing three times a week and that was fine. But three times a week was actually harder in really? some ways. It was. It really was. Why? And the reason, well, because it was a habit. I had a habit. I sat down every night at about 10 o'clock and wrote a blog post. And it was just the thing I did at the end of the day. That's what I did. Mm-hmm. And that's why I kind of like, you know, downloaded my brain onto the page and then went to bed. Um, whereas once I was... Like once I was on a schedule, I actually found it harder right. to decide what to write about. Right. When you have to blog every day, you just got to find something to write about, right? So you're just writing random stuff. And I had some really cool random posts in those days. I really loved them. Mm-hmm. Um, when I was blogging three times a week, it felt like every post had to be more important. Oh, yeah. So then I got more like I got kind of stage struck a little bit because I was like oh my god I mean it's three times a week and what do people want from me and what should it be and and you sort of don't like writing a paragraph about you know one small tiny element of your day doesn't feel as important as it should um but what happens now that you do it three times a week week. do you feel even more pressure to write an amazing post no, I actually don't. I, it's funny because well, now that I've gone to once a week, I'm back to, oh, my God, i just got to find something to write about because I'm so busy with yeah. others that it's kind of like more of a random thing again. It's Yeah, it's interesting the way it works. But when I was doing it every day, I found it really easy and I loved it. The worst part about it was images. Oh, yeah, that takes a long time. Because it was a while ago. It was five years ago. And we didn't have Canva and we didn't have, you know, there were just like not as many things where you could just, put together a quick graphic and stuff like that. Yeah. So images were so much harder for me back then. But now I just make them all or, you know, take iPhone shots of random things. But, yeah, I, I um, it's an interesting the way it works. It is a muscle and it is a habit. And the more you do it, the easier it gets. Yeah, absolutely. Hmm. Okay, so we have another interesting link this week. And um, it's so bizarre because Ooh. basically there is an inn, as in, you know, like a and b <laughs> Uh, in Maine, in the US, who uh, the the, um, the owner Janice is retiring after twenty two years, and she's decided to give the inn away, but she's choosing the winner through an essay contest. <clears throat> yeah, so what you need to do if you want to win to and win an inn to win an inn, and uh, she is looking for grammatically correct entries that show a passion for work, <laughs> is you need to write a 200-word essay, why I would like to own and operate a country in. Mm. So it's... Which I have to say... Yes. Let's just break that down for a minute, okay? 200 words Mm. is not very many words. No. It has to be an essay. It has to have a beginning, a middle, and a conclusion. And she's extremely... She's very, very precise about that. So it's got to be a formal essay. It's not just a random ramble thing. Mm. Um, Beginning, middle, conclusion. Um, 200 words. That is a really, really difficult task. Mm. I'd just like to point that out. It's It's essentially three paragraphs. It is. Mm. Yeah, well, that you know, it's it's not an easy competition, but no. you know, basically, it's saying that it's the real estate value is probably about nine hundred thousand. Yeah, wow, so, it's big You know, hey, write your two hundred words. Yeah, right? think really hard about your two hundred <laughs> words. I have to say that I don't. It's quite a big in. Um, yes. So it, I looked at it and thought, geez, that sounds great. And then I thought, do I really want to cook breakfast for 170 people every morning? No. <laughs> I don't. So, you know, I'm out. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> oh, you sound like you're on Shark Tank. 
Um, oh. <laughs> I'm out. I've always wanted to sound like that, Val. That's fantastic. <laughs> okay, so apart from um, some not-so-great news uh, is the hoopla. Have oh, you yes. heard? I have heard. I'm very, very sad. So that the um, this week the last edition of the hoopla has been published and um, they're going to continue. This, the site will remain there with a best of and an archive, but they're not going to be putting any new content on it for a little while, which I, or well, forevermore, which is, um, I think, really sad. Like, it's a gap in the Australian publishing world. Yeah, and but congratulations to Wendy Harmer and Jane Waterhouse for letting it go for this long. Absolutely, you know, absolutely. Keeping it up. But on the plus side, their sister site, Birdie, is apparently going from strength to strength and will continue. So it's that's the great. younger women's, you know, online yep. version of the hoopla. Yeah, that's great. Mm. So on to other things, a um, yes. little bit interesting, a little bit quirky, is that um, have you heard about, you know, hashtag Bloggergate? Hashtag Bloggergate? Yes. Uh, no, I have not. Well, you better tell me all about it, Valerie. Well, it's been Melbourne Fashion Festival mm-hmm. and uh, there's been <clears throat> Bloggergate occurring because apparently some prominent bloggers were moved from the front row to, you know, several rows back after some print journalists and print fashion editors chucked a hissy fit that they were in the front row. Well, that the bloggers were in the front row. And um, basically, there's an article in the Daily Mail saying tension between two tribes of Fashion Week attendees have been well documented. And the fashion editors irritated their front row seats have been taken by an army of bloggers who in turn argue that their attendance at the show is validated by their enormous social media reach. Now, you may, I'm sure you recall from our time in Glossy Magazines, Al, that that when it comes to um, Fashion Week and it, when it comes to uh, determining the hierarchy of where you, you, whether you matter or not, yes. <laughs> the, where your placement in a, in a catwalk show basically tells you whether that designer thinks you're important or not. And sometimes, so you're either in the front row, you could be in the fifth row, means you're not important, and sometimes you could actually be going to the um, – to the show with a colleague and your colleague gets to be in the front row but you get to be in standing room only because that's how they rate you it's a very very clear message as to whether or not you're important to that designer and so that is obviously continued and um, increasingly as some bloggers have gained more prominence and gathered huge social media followings compared to the the minute followings in comparison of, of um, print fashion editors. Bloggers have been treated in the same way as some of the big glossy magazine fashion editors and some fashion editors aren't happy about it. Oh, dear. Well... <laughs> Goodness me! Given that you know, generally speaking, at these events, I was sort of outside. <laughs> I, I don't really know what to say. I, I think. Look, I, I think that things are most assuredly changing in those worlds, and I think that fashion is probably one of the places, like the immediacy of blogs and things like that, because you know, like the print journalists are amazing and I know so many of them and they do a fantastic job and they're all over it. Um, But their magazines don't even come out for a month, you know. Mm. So um, by the time they come out, the bloggers have covered it. It's done and dusted, you know. So I can understand to a degree why the designers, you know, want those bloggers front row. Mm. 
oh, I don't know. What do you want me to say, Val? I just that <laughs> I don't know anything about fashion. Fashion, you know, I'm sitting here in my cargo pants. What, what can I tell you? All right. Well, we'll move on from fashion then <laughs> and talk about our writer in residence this week, who is the wonderful Patty Minot. Patty Miller. Now, Patty, as many people may know, is a presenter at the Australian Writers' Centre. She leads a uh, writing program in Paris for the Australian Writers' Centre every year, which always gets booked out. And oh, she is a. I would um, love to do that. Yeah, it's pretty pretty fun. Yeah. And uh, it's she she is one of Australia's. Uh, foremost experts in memoir writing and she is obviously a memoirist herself and I think what's really interesting with memoir and uh, you know memoir generally is that you really need to get that balance between um, writing something that's going to connect and be compelling and really engage your reader but not be navel gazing and all about Mm -hmm. me 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 and Patty manages to do that incredibly well. She is the expert on it. And she has helped many uh, of our students to publication, like Gina Lee with Call Me Sasha and Robin Shuttle with Dancing with the Cocaine Cowboy. You know, they've all been published by mainstream publishers for their memoirs. And um, this is Patty's memoir of a certain portion of her life. So let's hear from Patty. Patty Miller is renowned as one of Australia's leading memoir writing teachers. She's written many books, including Writing Your Life, The Last One Who Remembers, Child, Whatever the Gods Do, and The Memoir Book, and more recently, The Mind of a Thief. Her latest book is Ransacking Paris, A Year with Montaigne and Friends. Patty's also a presenter at the Australian Writers' Centre, and each year she takes a group of Australian Writers' Centre students to Paris on an unforgettable 17 days where they journey into the world of memoir writing and explore the beautiful city of Paris. Thanks for joining me today, Patty. It's great to be here, Valerie. Well, now tell us about your latest book. It's so exciting to have this book in my hands. Well, I have the proof in my hands, uh, but Ransacking Paris. Tell the, our listeners about your latest book. Well, Ransacking Paris just arrived on in my hands um, yesterday, so it's all very new and exciting for me as well. And it's the story of um, the year that I lived in Paris, uh, reading and writing. So it's uh, wandering around in Paris, um, experiencing being there, but also thinking about the life that I've lived and the changes in my life, the transitions in my life, and reading the French memoirs, and, and um, they illuminate my experience of being in Paris. So in, in a sense, it's it's a reading book and a writing book at the same time. Mm, did you go to Paris with the intention of writing a memoir about that year in Paris? Oh, not at all, not at all. In fact, um, I, I, I remember swearing that I would never do such a thing <laughs> as, as that. I, I actually, I went there uh, for, the, for the reasons that are explained in the book, that it was a dream of mine to, to go there and, and write and, and live there. And that's that's exactly why I went. And I did, and I finished a book, which was uh, Whatever the Gods Do, which was published by Random House. And uh, I didn't ever think write about it. So it was just uh, one of those things that happened um, after 10 years, really. So it wasn't a conscious choice to do that at all. It was just to experience being there. So if it wasn't your intention at the point, at what point did you start thinking, you know what, I think I might write about that year in Paris. Why did that start forming in your brain? Well, it, it was 10 years later and I 
something like that is is a very much a turning point in a life. And that's one of the things that I like writing about are the things that, that change your life or that are turning points in your life. Whether anything dramatic happens or not, it's still a point of change. And I was and I was thinking about that and I thought, oh, I didn't really understand what that year in Paris had been about. And I suddenly realized that if I didn't write about it, I never would. <laughs> because because writing about things is my way of understanding them. That um, other, other people, you know, might, might talk them out. But for me, um, it's writing about things. So I thought, I'll write about it and, and see what happens and see if I come to any kind of understanding about what that year was about. Mm, because I often meet people who say to me, oh, I couldn't write a memoir because, you know, I've never had a car accident or I've never survived <laughs> cancer or, you know, some really major dramatic thing. Yes. What are your thoughts on that? Do you think uh, there needs to be a major dramatic thing like a, you know, a death in the family or whatever? Not, not at all, not at all. In, in, in fact, I've, I've said to um, writers many times that, it's not what's happened to you, it's how you see it that makes a good memoir because people can have had all sorts of incredible adventures and still write terrible memoirs about <laughs> it. And, and people can have just experienced um, you know, their backyard or wandering in the bush. I always think of Annie Dillard who wrote um, the Pulitzer Prize winning um, t uh, at Tinker's Creek, mm. Pilgrim at uh, Tinker's Creek, and she um, didn't do anything. She just hung out by the creek and it's, you know, it's one of the most beautiful memoirs. So it's, it's really about how you see your life. It's your awareness, your consciousness of being. It's, it's not about the drama or sensation of life. It's about the experience of being in a life. Now, I know you've just said that writing about your life helps you understand it. And I also know that, um, you know, writing about some of your own life can be a very healing process. And I know that you've seen that in some of your own students. Why do you think the act of writing either heals you or helps you understand what's going on? Why can that not be processed, you know, just in your head kind of thing? <laughs> That's a really, really good question and it's something that I've thought about a lot and, and I think it's to do with language itself. I think that making sentences is an act of making meaning and it's an and it's an act of integration integration so if you've had some kind of disintegrating experience that something dreadful has happened to you in your childhood or you've experienced a terrible divorce or a horrible accident then making sentences about it by its very nature is an act of integration and it's an act of making meaning so um, and you have to choose consciously the words to say it whereas when you're speaking and thinking about it, you don't actually have to make those uh, conscious artistic choices about the language. And that, making those choices is actually empowering. It means that you are the one who is powerful because you are constructing the reality of the experience on the page. So I think it's, it's both freeing, putting it on the page, and it's empowering. So I think that's why it's healing. You're well known for your work in memoir, so you've written the best-selling text, Writing Your Life, and the memoir book. When did you first start becoming interested in memoir, and why? It was uh, a long time ago. I think it was would have been more than 25 years ago, I suppose, and, and it really it was actually when I was teaching at university. And I noticed that a number of the students were wanting to write about their own life. 
And um, so I thought that I would um, construct a course especially for them. And, and that's what I did, and it, was, and it was very popular from the very beginning. So I became interested in it first from that perspective, you know, from teaching, teaching others about it. But, of course, the more that I read, the more that I started enjoying and appreciating it. And I, and I started to see that I really enjoyed writing memoir myself, that it was actually that act of um, examining a life on the page um, like Montaigne, who I think was the father of um, memoir. People say that it was, uh, Rousseau was the modern father of, 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 of memoir, but I, I actually think it's Montaigne, and that's because he diverted himself to um, examining what it was like to be um, a human being in the world. And I think he really claimed it as a fit topic for literature, but the battle still goes on because there are people in the, in the literary world who look down their noses a little bit at memoir, and and I think well, if, if the human being isn't a fit topic for literature, I don't know what is. Mm-mm. And so, what separates then a good memoir from a not so good one? <laughs> so, <laughs> terrible. I think yes, I think there's. I mean, there's there's several things, but um, first one obviously is the quality of the writing. Yes. You know, if, if, if the writing is beautiful, then it really doesn't matter what you're writing about um, because, you know, the writing is gives you a beautiful experience anyway. But I, I think um, what lifts a memoir up into another realm, I think, is where you feel that you're not just reading about this person's, this individual person's life, but you are reading about the human condition, if you like, that what it's like to be a human being. Like, the, the, the for example, the memoir that, that won the Premier's Award last year in New South Wales, um, Boy Lost. And, you know, and it was quite a dramatic and sensational story about a boy, a little baby boy snatched from his mother's arms and didn't see him again for another 34 or 35 years. And so it's a dramatic story and beautifully written. But it, be, it becomes a, a meditation on the nature of, of memory and the construction of the self and what to do with grief and all those kinds of things which, are, which apply to all of us. So it means that although it's a very individual and dramatic experience, which most of us thankfully haven't had, uh, we still can relate to it because it's about dealing with all the things that we all have to deal with in universal terms. Mm-mm. So how does a memoir differ, if at all, from an autobiography? I, well, f- uh, my definition is mm-hmm. an autobiography is a, the story or account of a whole life uh, from when you were born and including everything that you think is important that's happened to you, whereas a memoir is an aspect of a life. You can you could write about your year in Argentina, mm. or you could write about bringing up your um, deaf son, or you could you could write about the breakdown of a relationship, it, and it means that you can write any number of memoirs because they're limited by time or place or theme or or story, whereas an autobiography will cover a whole life so really one autobiography should do you <laughs> yes <laughs> that's a great point because I've often been in conversations with uh you know young people and older people and the subject of the subject of memoir has come up and sometimes a younger person will say oh you know I think it might be interesting to write a memoir and an older person I've had I've seen this several times an older person would kind of snort <laughs> and yes. say you haven't lived you can't write a memoir that's that's absolutely not tr- not true to me, I, I was um, interviewed about this um, for a article of, 
and Herald, I think it was last year, and and it was a young writer who and and people were doing you know that sort of uh, scoffing mm. at a young writer writing a memoir. But to me, a memoir is about is about your experience of being in the world, and that's valuable whether you're seventeen or thirty five or eighty three. It doesn't make any difference what age you are. It's your experience of being. I've worked on a couple of memoirs of young people in their early twenties, um, writing about things like anorexia or, or drug addiction, mm. and. And their lovely young voices experiencing their um, uh, writing about their experience of being is just the most enlightening and extraordinary thing. If they waited 40 or 50 or 60 years to write that, mm. it would have changed entirely in their minds. Mm. So a young person writing is, is wonderful for all of us, but particularly wonderful for young people because they can then relate to that um, youthful uh, point of view, that youthful energy. Mm-hmm. So, so right, young people. It's, it's <laughs> the best. It's the best thing that you can do because you've you've got an audience of of other young people. Yeah, great. So you touch on something that um, it's a very good point that if you wait thirty years or fifty years or whatever, it's uh-huh. entirely different. So when, sometimes when people write memoir, though, they are writing about stuff that happened thirty years ago. Or a long time, very long time ago. How do you think those people can make those memories accurate or does it matter? Because, you know, our our memories definitely get fuzzy over a long time. Yes. That's a very um, large question, (laughs) I think, because it actually uh, goes right, and a very important question, because it goes right to the heart of of memory and what memory does. And, and of course, as as David McCoy, the uh, Melbourne academic, says that everything that goes through memory is a fiction. And I understand that because we do do construct them. We we leave little bits out, not consciously. We leave bits out, and each time we take them out, we apparently polish them a little bit. Um, and we and we change them a little bit according to who we are now, but I have found through the the writing exercises that I do, um, people can access those very early memories very clearly. In fact, those memories, those childhood memories, are much more clear than than later on because I think that your consciousness when they first go in is very clear as a, you know a seven or eight or nine or ten year old. You, uh, you're very clearly feeling and experiencing without many concepts what mm. was going on. So I think those exercises that I do help people access those memories. But I think you always have to accept the fact that it is a construction and it, that it is your version of events and other people who were there will remember it differently than the way that you remembered it. Mm. But your job is just to write it as as it is constructed in your mind and mm. that's that's your experience of being and that's all we have to go on really. All yeah. we have to go on is um, the construction that's inside us about who we are and what's happened to us. So when someone writes memoir, they do write about characters, you know, the people in their lives really, but then these are not fictional characters, they're real people. So how do you think writers can balance their perception of someone. So it kind of follows on from that last question. How do they balance their perception of someone, which may be greatly skewed (laughs) for whatever reason, depending on what was going on at the time, to the reality of that person? Like what responsibility do you think the writer might have to portray whoever that is in a more objective light or, or even accurately? Yes, it's it's also a really, really important question because, well, while part of me feels like that the writer is a um, 
uh, a scavenger and has a right to everything that they can find. Um, the, uh, I also uh, um, accept the fact that um, writers are under the same ethical responsibilities as everybody else. We're all, we're all part of the world and we all have relationships in family and, and friends. And I think, um, for me, the question is to examine why you, your motivation, why you, are, why you are putting it in there. Are you putting it in there because it's a necessary part of revealing the truth or are you putting it in there uh, for vengeance? Mm. You know, and and I, I, I agree again with, with Annie Dillard who said writing's an art, not a martial art. So to be, clear, to be clear about why you're doing what you're doing, but still people will be hurt and offended anyway um, because, you know, people can be sensitive and, and your, um, your version of them will very possibly not um, correspond with their version of themselves. Um, and if you want to maintain a relationship with them, then it would be a really good idea to talk about it with them <laughs> beforehand yeah. you know, and, and try to try to come to sort some kind of understanding about it. But very often the people who are going to be um, most angry and upset are people that you probably don't have a uh, relationship or it's a fractured relationship mm. anyway. Um, so, um, and they might send you nasty emails um, and put nasty things on your Facebook or whatever. And I speak from experience about this, but it, it really, you have to be very clear about why you are writing it and your uh, motivation for writing it and be aware of who can be hurt and upset mm. and whether you, uh, whether you can find another way of saying it that uh, won't be as distressing if necessary. But in the end, um, claim it as just your truth mm. and that other people's truths might be different. Mm. So when that has happened to you, you've mentioned that you've had Facebook messages and that sort of thing. Uh, and obviously that must have been after the book came out. So you don't have an opportunity necessarily to revise it because there's heaps of books in print. How yes. did you deal with that? Well, I I blocked her on Facebook, right. obviously, and and um, email as well. Mm. Uh, I first tried apologising, but that didn't work. That just made her more angry. Yeah. Uh, so uh, so I blocked her. But I did still find it emotionally distressing yes, that, that that had happened because, um, in my from my perspective, there wasn't any need to to be angry in that way but in the end you have to decide that it's 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 their uh, choice to react like that and because of who they are but um for for in one case uh, in the the mind of a thief um the last book last memoir there were two mistakes which the people contacted me about and they were upset they weren't angry they were up, upset about it, and I did promise them that I would change them in the first reprint, yeah. change the details in the first reprint, mm. and I did. I, I made sure that those those uh, errors, mm. um, which were upsetting to them, mm. were changed, and I sent them the copies of the um, the new reprint, yeah. which which was correct. So sometimes you can, uh, if you've made a mistake, mm. and it's uh, distressing to somebody else, then you sometimes you get the chance uh, to to correct it. So I did that. Sure. So let's go back to the year of ransacking Paris. Yes. You said ten years ago, uh, and you didn't think that you were going to write a memoir from it for uh, uh, about it. So at the time, did you make notes? Did you? How did you? You know, reconstruct 
that year, yes. <laughs> all these years later, because yes, it, they're, yes. they're not from childhood. Those writing exercises that you use to unlock what happens in childhood yes. it, it don't apply. How did you no. do that? I, I had a, I did have a diary, but it wasn't a, a journal type of diary where I wrote my thoughts and feelings or anything like that. It just had, it became, you know, one of those diaries which was just buy gloves, um, uh, ring mum tonight, yeah. uh, go to choir, that kind of thing. So I did have that kind of record there which I which I could look at but of course I've thought about it a lot as well and and, and talked about it mm. and I go back there every year as well so I am reminded of the the places I went and the things that I did and the people that I met mm. and so who some of whom are still my friends mm. so there was a lot of layering of of memory in there so I started by just writing down as I often say to students as a first step, writing down everything um, that I could think of uh, to to get going, just just doing a kind of brainstorm really on the page mm. of everything that I can think of. So that's that's how I got started with it. So during that year, you said that you wrote uh, your novel. Is that right? No, uh, you wrote no, a book. I, which no, book did no, you write? I, I, I was writing another memoir, uh, uh, whatever the whatever the gods do, yes. uh, which was published by Random House. Yes, but you ha- all have also written fiction. Yes. Now, writing fiction is obviously very different to writing yes. memoir. Do you go through a different writing process, or you know, because with memoir your life has been lived, but with fiction there's a blank piece of paper. What? Is yes. the difference in that approach for you? How does it feel different, or does yes. it? I, I, it does. It does feel different. I mean, I think in many ways it's the same because it's you're still construct. You're trying to construct a convincing world on the page, mm. and to me, whether that world has actually existed or it's on planet Zorg, it still has. It still has to be a convincing world. So all of the skills of writing always apply. Um, so in that sense, in the sense of the skills of writing and all the things that you need to be able to do to convince uh, the write, the reader that this is a um, an emotionally um, interesting and convincing world mm. uh, still apply. But in terms of how you make it, I, I think um, Mandy Sayers' distinction is very good. She says that, that um, memoir, you have the life, um, and it's about subtracting till you get a shape. Mm. And um, with a, a fiction or novel, um, it's you don't have anything, and it's about addition until you get a shape. So <laughs> I think that that's a quite a different process. I think in that way. But I still start with um, the the novel that I've written, um, Child, yes. which was. Uh, published by Alan and Unwin, it was very much about writing down everything that I could uh, think of that I um, wanted to include in terms of my experience of having a child. So it was based on those sorts of experience, those kinds of experiences of what it was like to be a mother. But I wanted to have a completely fictional story because I didn't want to expose. Um, my children in that way. Mm. So I I started by uh, constructing um, a story which uh, was about a boy uh, who goes to Asia when he's about 19 and he doesn't come back. Mm. So it was uh, quite a dramatic kind of story. So the process was very different in that I was inventing as I as as I went really as I was writing it, I didn't ever really know if the boy would come back. Mm. 
un, un, until the end. And so that was really interesting. But one of the things I did discover was that I, um, I couldn't kill him. Right. It was really interesting. Okay. I, writers often talk about, you know, the first time they kill a character. Yes. And um, I realised with him, I just found it impossible to kill him. Okay. So, so, <laughs> so that, was, that was kind of determined, the narrative, in a sense, once I realised yes. that I couldn't kill him. But it'll be, it would have been a completely and utterly different book yes. if, I, if I'd had the um, whatever it takes. To, to kill him. <laughs> so it's interesting that you say that you didn't really know till the end of writing that book what was going to happen to him. So mm. my question then is when it comes to memoir, because you said that uh, you write about your life in order to understand it. So did, do you not actually understand whatever it is that you were meant to learn from that period till the end of writing your memoir? I'd, I'd say yes. That's why I say to, to writers when I'm teaching a class, I always ask them, what do you think you're writing? Right. Because um, inevitably they will find after a few months that that's really not what they're writing about. There's a conscious idea which we construct, you know, that this is what we, this is what's happened to us. But very often there's another uh, agenda going on underneath that we haven't really looked at. And I think a lot of the impulse to write memoir actually comes from the fact of wanting to understand. If you already know about it already, it actually becomes very plodding to write because it's something you know. So for me, that's why that subtitle of writing your life is is the, uh, the, the journey because it is. You don't know. I know people think it's an overused term, but it actually is. You don't, And you don't know um, where you're going to get to, I don't think, until maybe three-quarters of the way through. And I found that to be the case every time for me and for many other writers that I know. And I think that if you already know and understand everything about what you, the period that you want to write about, yes. there's probably not much energy or impetus to write it. Interesting. Okay, mm -hmm. so tell us, when you are in your writing phase, mm -hmm. um, do you have, first of all, do you have writing phases, as in periods where you block out that you are writing as opposed to, you know, doing the other stuff that you do? And then when you, if and when you are in that phase, do you have a set routine, like, you know, you have a cup of tea in the morning yes. and then you go walk the dog or whatever, whatever it is. Yes. Yes. Tell us about that. It's, it's, the process for me has changed um, over the years because um, I had two, two children and I was mm. quite young. I was in my 20s. So my, my writing then was, um, I, I guess, arranged around um, times of uh, childcare and school and those sorts of things. Mm. So, so it was very much part of a life that was doing lots of other things. And I think this is useful to know because people often think, you know, uh, that a lot of women in particular, mm. if, if they do have children, it can be difficult, but it can be done. Mm. It really can be done. And it's, it's about organising time um, when you have the time and organising regular time. And that's what I did. But later on, I actually found that the blocks of time worked really well for me. So I started doing that because I could, because I could go away for a month and write, mm. you know, because, you know, my children were grown, I could do things like that. And I actually found it much more fruitful because I could spend all day and all night doing it. Um, and even if I wasn't writing, it was still going through my head and I wasn't having to relate to anyone or look after anyone mm. or anything like that. So, so now I, I do um, I do a mixture of both. Now I, I go away for blocks of time, 
um, you know, I might go to the mountains or down the coast or go to Paris and write. I've, um, I've, a couple of periods of writing, ransacking in Paris, was uh, actually spent in Paris mm. um, working there. And But I also work in a daily way when I'm working on a book. And I, 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 you know, I get up and have breakfast and then I go into my study and I don't do my emails. <laughs> I, I, start, I start writing and I write from about 9 till 2. Wow. And that's that's what I I usually Don't do. Stop. Uh, oh not no, I have a coffee. <laughs> I have a coffee. <laughs> of course you have a coffee. <laughs> you know, and um then I sometimes I might have a break to have something to eat and, and keep writing, but often I'll will work through. But I I give myself just um a thousand words to do. Right. I, I make it doable. I think that's really important because I think a lot of people set themselves up to fail. They they make a, a kind of unrealistic like getting up at 4 a.m. and writing or something yeah. like that. So then think, oh, I tried, but I couldn't do it. No. Look at what your life is like and what you're like. And if you're a night person or a morning person or whatever it is and other responsibilities you have and, and actually map it out. So so that's what I do. And I actually write it in my diary each day, you know, that you know I'm writing Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday morning. I normally have a class Friday morning. Um, so that's, that's how I do it. And then when I've uh, finished a draft, I will have, you know, six weeks or maybe more off sometimes while I get someone else to look at it and tell me, you know, what's going on with it, what's wrong with it before I start reworking it. So that's my usual um, writing practice. But sometimes I might find that I've, um, you know, been writing and, and made a mistake after, you know, 20,000 words yeah. or something and I, and I might have to start again. Yes. <laughs> mm-hmm. Horrendous feeling. Um, yes. So when, uh, with Ransacking Paris then, when did you start writing it and how long did the first draft of the manuscript take? I started writing it at the beginning of 2013. At right at the beginning of the year, it was it was the New Year resolution starting start in January. But in May, after five months, I f- actually realised I'd been going up the wrong track. Oh no! And I had twenty seven thousand words, and I had oh. to I threw them all out. Oh, I, I, it was a painful couple of weeks leading up to it, but. I, I once I realised it clearly, I just threw it all out and I started again. So, counting from May, it would have taken me from then probably only about ten months, which is quick for me right. to write a first draft, right. and and that was uh, beginning of twenty fourteen. I um, near the beginning of twenty fourteen anyway, yeah. um, maybe March or February. I had uh, I had a first. Draft. But I already had a contract from the first um, five or six chapters, first five chapters, right. I think. So um, I was working towards a deadline by then. Yeah. And so that first 27,000 words that uh, went on the delete button, um, what path were you going down? What made you realise that you were going down the wrong path? I stopped to read it, and I often tell students to do that at about 25,000 words, to just stop and have a good read of it. And I realised that it, I had written it in a completely different way. I'd written it based on the memoirist. So one chapter was on Montaigne, one 
chapter was on Disavigné, one chapter was on Rousseau, etc. And I realized that it, it was, had come out, of course, sounding essay-like because I was writing it from the sort of intellectual side of my brain. And I'm always telling students that you've you've got to find ways of accessing your creative because otherwise your intellectual self will start writing it all and it will be very well organized and sensible but it will lack that kind of creative flair and I hadn't done what I told my students to do and I, <laughs> and I know why I didn't realize why for about a year when a student asked because I told them to encourage them that you know that that everyone makes mistakes and that I'd made a mistake and and they said why did you do it and I suddenly realized in class what it was and it was that I was a bit embarrassed about writing a book about Paris because so many people write books about Paris so I thought I I would be um, be very intellectual about it and uh, that's and I re I didn't I wasn't conscious about that I re but I realized that's where it came from but once I I relaxed and realized that I just wanted to you know accept you know about writing the story of being in Paris and just bumping into the memoirists when I felt like it yeah, right. then it would find its own natural organic shape mm. so so that's that's what I did and and really it um the turning point came when I went to uh, an evening called the Memoir Club and Anne Deverson was speaking mm. and she was writing about some intellectual issues and her own life and I realised she would have the same structural problems so I said to her how did you solve your structural problems and she said oh well it took me 10 years and I was like, oh no oh no I don't want to take 10 years yeah. and and then she said but the most important thing is the story and so I went home and started again oh my god the very next day oh my god so well look you're obviously in love with Paris um, and you take a group of students from the Australian Writers Centre each year to Paris why do you do this what do you what's your goal in doing that well I, I think it goes back to what we were saying before about how you work and and me realizing that taking a block of time a writing retreat was actually a very fruitful thing to do and, and, and that it actually expanded you, especially when you're outside of your ordinary normal life because your ordinary normal life means that you, act to have, you actually have to act in normal ordinary ways and your brain stays on its track. And if you lift a person out of that, um, there is suddenly a whole world opening up to them and it, they think and feel in much more vulnerable ways because they haven't got their support system around them, they haven't got their family or friends, they haven't got their own house and they haven't even mostly um, haven't got their own language or, e or even knowing their way around. So in a way they're kind of vulnerable five or six-year-olds in, in a sense, not knowing the language or how to find things or anything like that. But that's really good for your writing to have that kind of vulnerability and openness. And, and I think to do it in Paris, which is at the same time so supportive of writers and so rich with a writing history, is, is the perfect place for, for that to happen. Mm. And so if somebody is interested in starting, in writing about their own life, and, I mean, of course, my advice to them would be, do the life writing course with Patty at the Australian Writers' Centre. <laughs> um, um, if, if they, you know, aren't ready to do that or they're not ready to come to Paris with you, what can they do just in their own home? What can, how can they start? What should they, you know, do? Well, I suppose I would have to say they'd have to get a hold of a copy of Writing Your Life. Yes. <laughs> 
uh, or the memoir book and start start doing the exercises. And really, that is apart from you know promoting my own books, it really is a very practical and 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 useful thing to do because yes. it can be very difficult to know where to start. So just just start doing exercises, start doing writing exercises like the map of house exercise, where you just draw for a start. You just draw a map of a house and then have a wander in. And you know, memories start pouring out, and you can apply that to any time if you like. You can draw the flat that you lived in in London, mm. or, or whatever. So that that is a way of getting going. But the thing I would say not to do is to start planning the whole thing out, because mm. for most people they get overwhelmed with that, with the hugeness of the task, mm. and how to um, incorpor- incorporate that 360 degrees of life that's all around them, it becomes absolutely overwhelming. So I always recommend um, what I call the patchwork quilt method where you just make uh, one small piece and then another small piece. You do that for a while. You don't even think about where to go or how to put it together or what the overall thing is for a start. That's that's the way to get started. Otherwise, you'll be stopped before you even begin. What was the most rewarding thing for you about writing Ransacking Paris? I think it was reliving the experience was the most rewarding thing. It was just so wonderful. I often think that... The experience of writing it? Yes. Or the experience of the writing it gave me the, the reliving of the experience of being in Paris. Right. And I think I've often thought that, for me anyway, life is somehow it's richer in the writing of it and and i think it's 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 an extraordinary thing to me that uh, the act of recreating it on the page brought it all back to me so for me the the most powerful experience was reliving what what was what had happened there which you know there weren't dramatic things that that were happening there but it was a a transition time for me and it was a letting go of of various various things in my life so i think that was the most wonderful part of it was being able and I think that's the most wonderful part of of memoir writing altogether is actually uh, reliving your life meet writers memoir writers live twice you know when you're experiencing <laughs> it and when you're writing about it so I, I, I think you know it's it's the great um, to me it's the great gift of, mm. of being a memoir writer is that chance to to live your life um, again and finally what do you hope readers get out of it Oh, I hope they really enjoy the experience of being in Paris. Mm. I And I also hope that they enjoy um, being introduced perhaps to these memoirs. And if there was a um, sudden spike in sales of Montaigne mm. after... Um, mm. After my book comes out, I'd be thrilled with that because I, I think um, that the way that um, really good memoirists enrich um, the experience of being is the most valuable thing. So if people come away enriched from reading Ransacking Paris, I would feel thrilled. Oh, absolutely. I certainly come away enriched after reading it. Wonderful book. So anyway, thank you so much for your time today, Patty. Thanks, Val. It's been great to talk about it. So there you go. What did you think? Fantastic. I, look, I, I think it's always amazing to listen to anyone who is really, really good at what they do. And she, she is really, really good at what she does. So, you know, for me, it's a winner. 
and I think it's really interesting that um, she was how she was saying that uh, you know the, the act of writing it down kind of helps you make sense of what's going on in your life. Mm. And I think that even if you're not writing a memoir, even if you're just, you know, say stuck on a plot point or you're just not sure which um, path to take in your writing career or even in your non-writing career, just start journaling about it. Just start writing about it. It, do- it doesn't have to end up being on a blog. It doesn't have to end up being anywhere. But the mere act of writing it down can help you just work through a whole heap of things rather than just letting it you know, bubble around in your brain and cause you sleepless nights. Mm. I, I find that I do that a lot, so I find it really useful. Um, but let's move on to our working writer's tip this week because I came across a link that is about um, the mistakes that writers make on Twitter. Hmm. And um, I thought that was really interesting because, you know, you and I both follow quite a lot of authors and writers on Twitter and some use it incredibly well. And some of some people don't use it at all. Even though they appear active on Twitter, it's not really working for them. And that's yep. probably because they're not quite using it the right way. Now, just for these four mistakes, I'll just run through them. Neglecting to use mentions as in you know making sure that you mention somebody who has uh you know written a great review about you or said something nice to you or whatever overlooking the power of twitter lists so you might want to make lists of influencers or publishers or agents so that you're aware of what they're tweeting about and you can connect with them you make sure you can connect with them Number three is procrastinating the move to Hootsuite. I mean, that's up to you, that you don't have to use Hootsuite. You can use Hootsuite or TweetDeck or Buffer or whatever it is. That's just easier than using the web interface for Twitter. And number four is thinking that scheduling tweets is a big no-no. There's nothing wrong with scheduling tweets. But what I'm interested in, Alison, is what do you think are some of the mistakes that writers make on Twitter? I actually thought this was quite an interesting list because it's it's not the obvious ones. Mm. You know what I mean? Like there's always a lot of obvious, you know, blah, blah, blah. I think, you know, the, the biggest mistake that I – like there's two that I see a lot. Um, one is this constant barrage of buy my book, buy my book. Did you see my review? Did you see my this? Did you see my that? And, I mean, I understand it to a degree because, like, I, you know, when, when a book comes out, like when the map makers came out, I did feel – like every second tweet that I did was about something to do with that book. I was kind of like, oh, my God. But you kind of it, – it's just in the – at that particular time, that's what happens. But what happens, I think, is that people put a book out and then, you know, they, they – it's a very strange feeling publishing a book because it, it's like it happens in an alternate universe. The book comes out and there's a big parade or whatever for a day. It's like, yay launch day and then nothing and your book just goes quietly about its business doing its thing out there in the world and you're sitting at home going what can I do what can I do what can I do I know I'll tweet buy my book buy my book buy my book um wrong thing to do it's just so annoying from the other side of it um what you need to do is just continue making conversation and and you know keeping your engagement up with people and finding new people to talk to and you know it's that's the best way forward. That's how social media works. The other thing that drives me insane, insane, and happens a lot with, I think, new users of Twitter, uh, you follow them on Twitter and they DM you, thanks for the follow, buy my book, or here's a link to my book. I unfollow straight away. If you do that to me, I will unfollow you straight away. I cannot stand it. It is just the most, 
It's like, you know, you meet someone at a cocktail party and you say hello and that's all you've said and they shove a book in your face and yeah. say, you should totally read this. Yeah. Is that really what you want to be doing? Yeah. <laughs> no, it is not what you want to be doing. So those would be my two big mistakes. And it's a surprising number of people that do both of those things. Yeah, definitely. What about you? Have you got one? Um, my big bugbear is one that you've sort of already mentioned, which is very much people who don't make conversations. So all they do is mm. blast promotion mm. or they, you know, uh, retweet people's praise of themselves and they never bother to actually have a conversation with you. And it's really obvious from their stream mm. uh, when that happens. So that's my big bugbear because they're, they're just wasting an opportunity. Mm. But it's also just rude. Mm. Yes. Okay. Yes. There you go. So uh, that brings us to the end of our podcast this week. What wow. is happening Wow. How did you? we get to this point already? <laughs> it's extraordinary, isn't it? What are you doing this week? Um, well, this week I've got a lot of writing to do because last week I was talking a lot and that means that this week I have to write a lot. That's pretty much how it works. But I also have um, a competition going on my website yes. uh, where you can win a signed copy of the Mapmaker Chronicles 2, a very cool bookmark. We have some new and exciting bookmarks as well as a beautiful little leather notebook that I have because, um, as you know, I am a notebook fan. Yes. And in the Mapmakers, Quinn has a leather journal that he carries about with him everywhere he goes on the boat. And this um, this is kind of like a close approximation of what I thought Quinn's might look like. So you can win all those things. You um, you need to be a newsletter subscriber to um, to enter. All the details are on my blog, and we will put the link in the show notes. So, um, so you need to be a newsletter subscriber to Alison's newsletter to which my is newsletter, yes. AlisonTate dot com. But that's yes, there, there'll be a link, a direct link to the competition yes, in the show in the notes book, as well. Yes, that's correct. Mm, Thank well, you for that. Meantime, I will be running around like a chook with my head cut off because oh, what are just, you doing? Just got a lot of things to do because I'm going uh, overseas at the end of the week. So oh, you know, right. in that period that is the lead up before you go overseas, suddenly you have to complete five thousand million things. Yes. So that will be me, and um, we've got a quite a number of courses launching this week. Um, this week we've got our. Um, course how to write about murder that's being launched this week uh we're releasing magazine writing stage two which is been in hot demand by lots of people so it's if you've done magazine writing stage one or travel writing or food writing this is a great next step it's extremely comprehensive um there's a lot of information a lot of stuff that you can learn a lot of really great resources and um yeah that's what i'll be doing this week why are you going overseas why are you leaving me? <laughs> I'm going to a conference in Phoenix and then I will be going to San Francisco where I intend to explore all of the city's literary haunts. Ooh. Yes, I'm going to make sure that I, you know, visit City Lights Bookshop and, you know, go to lots of different places. How exciting. New books. And then I've got a couple of days in LA where I will be hanging out with my friend also called Alison. Oh, and she is an entertainment reporter. So she's at the Oscars. She's there, you know, at the Golden Globes. She's, you know, doing all that sort of 
wearing evening dresses and getting glammed up so because she's interviewing how fab all of the fabulous celebrities what a fab thing oh what an excellent trip i'm yes. not jealous at all <laughs> not even slightly so thank you to everyone who's given us some shout outs on social media and also for your reviews and ratings on itunes if you can take 30 seconds to leave us a review or a rating we'd really appreciate it because that helps us in our mm-hmm. rankings and um uh if you have a question that you'd like us to answer email us podcast at writerscentre.com.au and where do we find you on social media Al? Uh, you'll find me mostly this week I think on Twitter where I am at Al Tate T-A-I-T um, but you'll also find me on Facebook and I'm Alison Tate writer over there and you'll find me at Valerie Koob uh, and um that's it for this That's week. It. Yeah. Oh, time so, flies in podcast land, doesn't it? <laughs> Thank you so much for listening, everyone, and we'll talk to you next week. Bye. Bye.